How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 190. Go Flag Mantle! Yeah. It's real! Yeah. Flag Mantle's real. Believe in it. <laughs> Believe in it. Hopefully, by episode 194, we'll be very happy. Yeah, I know. That premiership that we personally own, Zeke. Yeah. For all these years of fanship. Being a prayer supporter is serious commitment. Who said that? There was some guy who said that once. He's like, I bust my ass every day being a Star Wars fan. That was an actual quote from some podcasting guy. <laughs> I remember that. No, but it's good. We, we can dream, Zeke. Well, it's a good thing you brought up Star Wars, Jake. Oh, no. Because the man we're going to be talking Why about... Why did they do that? We're sort of the, uh, <laughs> the creator of Star Wars. So I've heard. Jake, do you have a fun f- trivia fact from the film of the week? I do, I do. So, of course, we're talking about American Graffiti. It's very exciting. And like you said, Zeke, this film predates Star Wars mm-hmm. in terms of George Lucas's overall career, which we'll be talking a little bit about in his director's corner. Um, so this film being sort of prior to the big monolithic giant that is the Star mm-hmm. Wars IP, uh, this film was on a smaller budget, consisted of a 28-day shoot, which was actually shot uh, not only almost exclusively at night, but in sequence which I didn't realize that, which which really? is weird because it is sort of a slice of, slice of life film where you're sort of shooting different parts of different people's stories, which I, which I think is interesting. So I wonder how accurate that shot and sequence quote is. Mm. Um, but that means that all the wear and tear of the characters that you see through this sort of one night in the film is in fact the actual cast just overworked and tired from the shooting schedule, which I think is a nice little touch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that it's a good way of... Um... You know, we can delve into the production and all that in the second mm. part of the show, but yeah, that chronologically sequenced uh, shooting schedule probably makes the the end reprieve more justified because mm. it's such a concentrated dose of of production work. Um, my fun fact uh, does tie into our cast, and mainly, um, obviously, we talked about it predating Star Wars, which. Mm. Um, also predates the George Lucas becoming a household name at the time. And sure. This is his second featured film. Uh, feature film. And, uh, well, he couldn't afford to pay any of the cast. So, um, <laughs> as uh, at the time, it wasn't commonplace at the back end of a film to put all of the cast's names re-mentioned right. or in that. Um, and now it's commonplace. So, you know, the... First thing we see before we roll into the the the, uh, the first thing in the credits we see is actually the actors getting top billing, which is right. at that at that time wasn't very common. Mm. Not to mention also this film features Harrison Ford, and that he couldn't afford uh, to they oh, couldn't afford yeah. him at first. Yep, I have heard of this. As a <laughs> he was a carpenter at the time, and he was getting offered less to be in this film. And he wants to be a carpenter. Now, can you imagine a world where Harrison Ford was a carpenter <laughs> and he denied a lot of money? That's kind of crazy to think about. That in yeah. the space of 10 years... Well, I could, I could see a world where he just says no to any and all films, period. Mm. Of course, that was a... <laughs> I, think in the, I think in the early 70s, prior to Wars, he was a bit happier to... Yeah, it's going to be interesting to talk about, particularly George Lucas and that intersection of careers with, with people like Spielberg and De Palma and, and such that we'll talk about in the, the second half of the show. Mm. And particularly, you know, the casting in this film has certain uh, leads that would find themselves in 
blockbuster films not a couple of years later. Yeah. Which is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Watching this and then knowing... It's like, wow. Wow. But anyway, it is what it is. Zeke, the poster behind you, 1,100 films you must watch at least once in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Is American Graffiti on that list? You'd hope so. It most certainly is on the list. 1960... Sorry, 60. Jeez, 1973 films. A lot of films on that list, but... No, I, I think even just based on George alone and his impact on the wider industry, you probably would want to put this film on that list. But even the film as like a time capsule, I think it totally deserves to be on this list. I think this film is a type of film lot. too. I think mm. that this film um, has a generational legacy that can still that still echoes now, yeah. and we can talk about where that sits um, and what I mean by that in the second half of the show. Sure. But I know a film that came out 20 years after this film by Richard Linklater, which mm. nearly mirrors this film's uh, sort of coming-of-age um, coming storytelling over one night in a seemingly nameless town, mm. um, which we'll, we can talk about a little bit more Um I had a very interesting viewing experience with this one. I definitely, oh, definitely, okay. the film resonated with me a lot more this time. Just to spoil it, but before we jump mm. into the film of the week, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? I haven't watched too much. I watched the THX one one three eight, the short film, not the feature film. Okay. It's a little harder to find. If you can get it on Apple or iTunes, which I'm not going to bother with, <laughs> but I watched the fifteen minute short, which which is fine because it does sort of encapsulate. Uh, the early days of, of what made George Lucas such an interesting filmmaker in those early days, especially as a student at the University of Southern California's film school. <laughs> but Don't we have a famous story about UCLA? Or Oh, we did. Yeah, we do. That's funny. With a former mentor of ours um, <laughs> editing and constantly talking about how George Lucas was it, appeared in her editing booth. Yeah, there you go. I, I got it. It's still the funniest thing is she's talking about like, oh my God, George Lucas was there and we were here. And then your response was this, was this before or after the prequels? I remember. <laughs> I was like, oh God, that I is was... the biggest dick comment <laughs> you could possibly make. <laughs> you know, I'm starting to think, oh, I really thought back about this, not to get too tangential, but sure. boy, my, our undergrad degree was like, it really, by the end, really brought out some really, like, visceral, mean <laughs> traits. Like, I look back at it now, and it's like, wow. Some of those... Co- like, just the world you're in is just so much more um, snarky, I think. Mm. And you, 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 you're raised to be cynical. I think I think the problem, and we're getting very sidetracked, but I feel like I should make this comment, is, like, I think... Especially with like film people, when you all get in a room, and especially if you don't catch up often, I think you sort of get in this mindset where you have to talk about film very quickly and very passively. Mm. And what I mean is the kind of conversations film people have, they're so versatile and vast in the sense that you can't just sit down and talk about a film for 30 minutes. You have to talk about a film for five seconds within the, the scope of a larger conversation. So everyone narrows down their film critiques and reviews to just one sentence or one word, mm. which usually comes down to either it's excellent or it's crap, and you know, or any variation of those particular words. It becomes very black and white. And I think that's the key to a lot of like you know film students and film tutors and film you know colleagues, if you will, like Absolutely. those. I just I hate that so much. 
I really do. And I think we lose any and all nuance in film discussion through that. A perfect example is like one of our tutors who had seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, I guess within a few hours of us having gone see it. And of course, we asked, her, oh, how was it? And his immediate response was, oh, it was shit. It was terrible. Mm. And it took weeks. And then finally, after a sit down at a bar, where he elaborated on his thoughts, and he actually had way, way more positive things to say about the movie. And it really opened my eyes of, I think people just like to be opinionated yeah. in this industry and like to say things very curtly and quickly. I get it, but it completely destroys film discussion. But anyway, I think that's where a lot of that stems from. Absolutely. But to, to go back to, I guess, you know, talking about George Lucas in the student, <laughs> student film days... Um, this is a film that he made while studying there at the Southern California Film Festival. Film Festival, Jesus Christ, Film School. It's been a long day, Zeke. And I think it really does show the beginning of a through line in his films, and if you especially compare it to this film, or THX 1138, mm. to American Graffiti, to Star Wars, like that three sort of steps uh, that he takes in terms of the kinds of films he makes. And what I mean by that is experimental or surrealistic and then it turns into something a bit more accessible to mainstream audience something a bit more um approachable i guess by mainstream audiences but then also the level of political commentary that they have thx 1138 is so like 1984-esque in its visuals and its commentary on totalitarianism and dystopian futures and and the other thing i want to mention is like i'm watching it this is from 1976 sorry 1967 this predates most ad- visual adaptations of 1984, mm. which we have that association with the visual look of it. And even the Apple's version of the ad they made, the 1984 ad they did, even films like Pi, films like Tron, that have these very particular n- negative futuristic looks to them. And it's like, this film predates all of them. And I feel like I could be wrong. I could be missing a few things in my head. But this film really does establish the the tone and look of those kinds of dystopian future yeah, films that, that we've seen so much of and that we just associate now. You know what I'm saying? This is like the 1984 visual aesthetic film. For it, but, uh... but it came out decades before the 1984-1984 adaption. There is an adaption from 1956, I want to say. Yeah, 1956 of 1984. But I wa- it's on YouTube. I watched a few clips and I'm like... Yeah, no, this doesn't have that look yet. It feels a bit more stage play, and mm. a lot of the interiors just sort of have this like underground brick uh, background to it. And, and I'm like, this film, this short film really did birth that aesthetic, which I have to give George Lucas mad props for. And of course, he birthed a lot of things in Hollywood that would come on, uh, go on to become big, recognizable traits, I suppose. Yeah. Especially with Star Wars and just like the sci fi iconography of it. And the experimental use of sound. Which, you think about it, sound in film, it's usually pretty straightforward. You know, you capture your dialogue, you get your foley, you get your you know, your background of like cars passing the street. You have your those general um, things with sound. But horror, sci-fi, and very rarely, but also sometimes in comedy, do you actually get true experimental use of sound. And I think this short film, and I guess the feature would as well, really does encapsulate that. So yeah, I just um, I thought that was actually really excellent short, and I'll get into it a little later when we talk about American Graffiti in total. How I think this turns into American Graffiti turns into Star Wars in terms of the kinds of films he makes and the political messaging 
of those films and how overt or subtle they become. Mm. Now, the other film I watched, the only other feature I watched, I should say, is Baz and Dream. So this is a local Ooh. film, of course, shot in Basadine. And um, it was shot, I feel like it was shot a few years ago. I mean, that's the charm of the, the visual look of this film and the, the fact that it was shot in 16mm and has that you know strong aesthetic to it. Is it. You really can't tell when it was shot. I know it was only recently distributed because of the music, and we're going to get into the music uh, pretty shortly. But yeah, I thought this was the perfect film to catch since it's you know it's been playing at Luna. I think there's a few more screenings later this month. I'll get into it in a minute, what the deal is with it. But yeah, set in Bassadine, specifically February 2nd, 1997. So this is a few months before either of us are born, Zeke. And it, it does very similar to what American Graffiti does, that mm. slice-of-life thing uh, where we're following different characters on multiple journeys of varying importance where some characters are getting more screen time than others. But compared to this, or like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or even Licorice Pizza, I actually think it has more in common with an episode from The Simpsons the famous episode 22 uh, short films about Springfield, the steamed hams meme, is of course where that comes from. Um, but I think it has more um, resonance with that in the, in the sense that almost all of the characters and their journeys, they barely intercross. The, the, the only reason they do intercross at any point is to just transition from one scene to the next. And that in terms of the plot, and it's a very, 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 very thin plot. There basically is no plot. You know, Day in the Life in Bassendine. Mm. And just, like, that vibe of the mid to late uh, 90s, that last day of summer before you go back to school, and mostly focused on kids of varying age. Some, some are in high school and are teenagers, some are a lot younger. Um, less focused on the adults, but even then, the adults are so hyper-domesticated that, that they don't really have wider ambitions of, of with, you know where they work or what they do or how they raise their kids. It's just everything is so lived in and in the moment which is so true of well, hyper-domesticated adults, but also mm. a lot of the kids that are in this film. And again, 16mm just sort of has this like sandpaper look to the whole thing. But it looks absolutely incredible. And the way that it was shot, just these super long takes, fantastic use of 3 by 4 aspect ratio, um, just with the framing and everything. And it really creates this like lived-in feeling. But even though there is a sense of emptiness to it, where a lot of the streets are quite empty, there's not a lot of people, it's like that kind of adds to that feeling of this empty playground that these characters are just playing with. So I I freaking love this film. And like I said, it sort of has that tie to American Graffiti and the slice of life thing. Now, musically, the reason this has a limited run, I was told by a friend of the show, Andy, who's actually doing his PhD around music and film. So mm. I think he was quite savvy to a lot of this, but... There's a lot of tracks in here. Paul Kelly's Dumb Things. Australian oh, Crawl's Reckless. What a banger. Absolutely. Oh, bangers. Banger. Um, they've even got Spice Girls in here. Wannabe, you know. Um, there's a lot of music in here that... I was like, how did this no-budget WA film get access to a lot of this music? Mm-hmm. I know it was a lot to do with Halo films and Ian sort of reaching out and getting a lot of these permissions. What I didn't realize is that apparently they can only do 40 screenings outside of festivals before the licenses run out on all these songs which I think is fascinating. So that's why that's one of the reasons why I jumped on it now. I wanted to see it before it was sort of... See, I don't know what's going to happen, if they're going to pay for another license or if it just sort of fizzles out, if that archival side of this film disappears forever. But I think this has a wider question, Zeke, and you can tell me what you think of... What do we feel about a, f- a film like this, Bastardry, mm-hmm. which I, I think is excellent, and I think the music is a huge part of why it's excellent. 
the use of it, the way it melds into the stories. But the fact that there's a chance that this film won't legally be allowed to play in its quote-unquote complete form in the future, I, that's, this is something about that that bugs me almost. Well, unfortunately, where do you where do you stop and where do you start? I mean, mm. we, we can take the Thunder Road conversation with Jim Cummins, yes. right? Yeah. Who ruthlessly um, pushed to have Thunder Road play in his short film. Yes. And there's that famous, you know, the famous story with him, like sending letters and contacting <laughs> Bruce Springsteen for this yep. song, and and saying they're always sending him a little bit of money at a time. Money was obviously pointless for Bruce, and sure. he eventually gave the green light. However, when the feature-length film rolled around, mm-hmm. the film is uh, the song is non-existent in right. the feature. They sort of ride around it almost. Yeah, well, they they mm. the he can't get it working. The big ending, yeah, <laughs> the big ending just never happens. Yeah. And I believe that then it becomes obviously it's an eth it's it the 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 film actually changes almost its meaning yeah or at least the the meaning becomes a reference to the song mm. in the and we you know it's him exploring that what his mum really meant by getting out yep and that in in, in change it kept the theme at its core but it did change the message a little bit it augmented the message that we have which is truly remarkable when you think about that um so we take a film like this with this and and you know all these great songs they're great Mm. but if we start there where do we stop and then how many songs would get murdered by poor films you know it's a great film and you know they might get the rights to this sometimes artists are very generous with their with their music sure. if they like the message or what you're trying to achieve with the with the song and the worst i mean as a creative what do you do you mm. you just send them a copy of the film and go can i please use your work this yeah. is what it looks like currently might get a yes might get a no mm. but it's interesting because, like, I think back to with Disconnected in particular, there was a song that was Lemon Boy, Cape Town. I really wanted that to be the song that played during the credits. Mm-hmm. And I remember at this point, we had already announced that the film was going to be, like, 47 minutes in runtime. And I had stretched the credits out to the length of the song. And I tried many, many times to get in touch with the, with the artist. And I had, like, a manager email on the website who wasn't getting back to me. And eventually, their personal face, I don't know if it was him or not, but eventually the personal Facebook page got back to me and just said... I can't remember the exact wording, but they basically declined. They said, thanks, but no thanks, which is totally fine in their realm. And my thinking was, you know, I could do the private screening. I mean, it's a lot of um, uni films, Mm. you know, that use licensed music, but they can't use it outside of that specific, um, you know, screening or whatever the case may be. And my preference in that moment was, okay, well, I'd rather just use music that I have a license to or the rights to. And we ended up using original music for the credits uh, that Nick Doig had done. But I I wanted to just kind of keep it as... A, that's its one package. That's the one film, and no one's ever going to hear the version with the Cape Town music during the credits um, because I'm not going to be able to get access to it, and that's fine. And I think it's different because that film did not make or break Disconnected. Mm. I did not write Disconnected <laughs> with that song being an essential piece to the story. It wasn't. While with Thunder Road, this song is an essential piece to the story. And with Bass and Dream, I think the music... I mean, like, technically... The film can work without it, but it adds so much to it, you know. And I would hate to watch a version of this film without those specific songs. So I, I 
admire and respect the discipline of an artist and, and the legalities. Because I imagine, you're right, a lot of the time, the artist mm. himself is not the real barrier. No. And all the money. It, it's There's a lot of uh, middlemen, you know, third parties involved that they want to get their paydays. So they sort of put their foot down. So I get all of that. Um, it's it's just, I'm, I find it a shame. I really do. And I really hope there is a version of Bastion Dream that comes out online one day or is, is you're able to pay to see it and it includes the music all in there. No, and that's so, it. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it's, and you always hope for that. Mm. Um, I guess the, the counter is why do you need to use all these really popular artists or sure. these artists that are commercially successful? I mean, Paul Kelly's a great storyteller. Mm. No one's ever going to detract that. And, and Reckless, you know, James Rain's Reckless is a great song. Mm. But are there lesser artists that tell really good stories? I mean, we are actually ripe with Australian talent mm. all across the country. Um especially here in Perth we have a very strong music scene and I'm sure there are some very good storytellers out there with original content that you could attain sure um, but I, f- I think in the in the case of Bass and Dream it's kind of like boyhood you know or even you know American Graffiti it's like it, the music is so key to yeah. that time period they're trying to represent sure so it kind of needs to be not not necessarily like popular but you know known songs that people in the 90s would have recognised or heard on the radio so to speak. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that makes sense in that regard. But otherwise, I think you're right. I think, you know, I mean, we've done it multiple times. How many times have you got an original music written for films that you directed or that we directed together? And that, a lot of times... It's was it at great. least twice or three times? Three, twice for the film. Yes. And then once. Just... Home Again, Faces... Those are two I remember off the top of my head. They're the two. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Hitched was... That's music right. that was already recorded but yeah still got approval for yeah yeah so no I, I get your point but that's what makes it tricky it's something like but like these two films i just mentioned where the time period is so important to the story and to the music so absolutely it's interesting it's it's i wanted to bring it up because it really is a question that doesn't have a concrete answer and that, you know part of me would conversation like, to have them. yeah well exactly but uh that that's pretty much all i've seen in the last week other than the film of the week of course zeke what have you been up to in the last week? Um, I haven't watched well, a lot compared to last week. We all knew that was coming. Um, but I did watch the latest Untold instalment. So yes, they're still coming out every week. This eh? is the final one, I believe. Um, oh, I think there is one coming out this week. Okay, so that's the last one. Okay. Um, and this one was Operation Flagrant Foul, which oh. was about a crooked NBA official who was uh, placing bets on games that he was umpiring. <laughs> And it's no sort of surprise. one of those things, you know, especially given, uh, uh, you know, we were talking about the footy at the top of the show and particularly the umpiring on the weekend we both thought was quite questionable. Oh, my God. Part of your, part of your brain, and obviously this very intriguing story, how does one who, especially in the NBA, uh, make, you know, these umpires are making upwards of 400 grand a season. Ooh. Why would you throw that all away mm. and on these bets? And... I think part of it was the, you know, the thrill of it mostly. But what was more intriguing is is the disposition that obviously they actually interview um, this this referee and and he suggests that the higher ups are, you know, explicitly telling the umpires to target certain players and then certain yep. players are allowed to 
get away with a little bit more because they're stars like Shaquille at the time, Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, like, you know, these, these sort of big money players were able to get away with a lot more. And then obviously the agendas that come with umpiring and, and, and as a former umpire mm. um, of AFL football, it is quite interesting, this this conversation of pure objectivity just doesn't really exist. Mm. Um, you have to be as objective as possible. Of course, yeah. Um, and I can say, look, I only umpired at a junior level for nearly 10 years, so there was hardly... I say, you didn't umpire for the actual AFL? <laughs> no. Oh, highest, highest I got was juniors. <laughs> but obviously, I have quite a few friends that have gone on to... Um, umpire Waffle and umpire mm. even the AFLW and actually one that has made it to the AFL who's in, you know, and you sort of sit there and you go, well, I know how objective some people can be, but I also know how subjective some people can be. And, yep. and it was it is interesting, that, that aspect of it where certain, I can see certain... Um, CEOs wanting game, like for example, in 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 the American system, they have a playoff system where um, it's best of seven, mm-hmm. and he was suggesting that they were pushing games to go to game seven because it's more money. Yeah. So you know, a four nil whitewash in games is not making as much money as a seven game playoff. So that was always interesting. Um, and then you see games like on the weekend where you know, and we're a West Australian club and we're very you know a lot of us over here are very anti-victorian but we also feel the afl is quite anti anything that isn't victorian and it's always tough when you play in a victorian team and it's nine nil on the free kick count that you're just like <laughs> surely something's been su- suggested but no we know, still won we still won <laughs> they couldn't stop us like. no but it was a, it was a good doco i mean it was they, they really have a real common uh, palette common theme Netflix docos they're very clean they don't overstay their welcome so it was it was okay hmm. wasn't as interesting as I thought it would be I thought it was going to be the one I really liked but it was it was just okay okay that's alright yeah. they don't have to be masterpieces yeah but nice if they were though adequate <laughs> and that's all I watched for the week oh that's fair enough oh too easy no worries well it is time for us to move into our f- unless you got any career updates <laughs> okay. So for us moving the film of the week and our latest director's corner, number thirty-eight. Oh my goodness. But Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? This we're gonna show Zeke watching American Graffiti. Steven, cut over to G Street. I just saw a vision. I saw a goddess. Come on, you gotta catch up to her. You see anything? Come on, Kurt. We can't be spending half the night chasing girls down for you. Maury, huh? I'm telling you, this was the most perfect, dazzling creature I've ever seen. She's gone. Get it. She spoke to me. She spoke to me right through the window. I think she said, I love you. That means nothing to you people. You have no romance, no soul. 
She, someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. Will you turn the corner? Oh, Kurt. A couple of high school graduates spend one final night cruising the strip with their buddies before they go off to college. Hmm. Coming of age, Zeke. We've done yeah. a couple of those. Those coming of age. We have. Um, you brought up boyhood in the first part of the show. I did. I did. Um, which <laughs> that's not the link later. I I would equate this film to. This sure. Is a, let's be real. This is a a what I can only assume was the spiritual inspiration behind Dazed and Confused, ah. which shared a similar story, though not the end of the. What, uh, not the end of the school holidays, like this is implying. Right. It's the end of... It's the start of the school holidays in Dazed and Confused, but follows a very similar ensemble cast as we follow multiple different storylines through a mm. night in a nameless town, which is the exact same as American Graffiti, just also, obviously, two different times, one in 62, and I would assume Dazed and Confused is actually 92, Okay. Because it's more contemporary came out in 92 and yep. and it doesn't suggest a year. Oh, I might be wrong, actually. It might actually suggest a year. I've got to double check that. But, um, yeah, it's definitely Linklater's ode to this film. And I right. think this type of film has been made in multiple ways. I don't think Linklater, Linklater is sure. the only... Why, I mean, even just the films I compared Bastardine to, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say that... Licorice Pizza is is a, sort of a slice of life film like this is. I mean, I mean Richard Linklater's on a few of those, but even just the idea of like following multiple characters in their own little stories. I mean, even Pulp Fiction, you know, you could say that has a bit more back and forth in terms of the timing and the structure, narrative structure. But yeah, so Days and Confused was ninety three and it was set in seventy six. So, oh, there you go. Which. That's a big jump. <laughs> twenty years, twenty years on from American Graffiti sure. to, the, to the to the year, and then um, fifteen years apart from American Graffiti. So in, in the in world time, in the in world so time. Speak, yeah. So I definitely think that was the Linklater grow up teenage movie versus the uh, this was the clearly the Lucas teenage year movie. Yeah, well, it, it's funny you mention that because it, it's sort of famous now that that Francis Ford Coppola kind of challenged Luke, uh, Lucas almost as a joke to to write a script or to make a film that would appeal to mainstream audiences and I guess off the cave uh, off the cuff of off the tail I'm thinking of all these different analogies now of THX1138 that is so surrealistic and and it bombed commercially and bit of a bit ironic coming from the guy who then goes and makes a 3 hour odyssey of a film <laughs> the year later no, but I think, I mean, hey, I'm really glad that he made that comment or that joke because I think this film's excellent. I love American Graffiti. And I think the thing that shocked me the most, because the first time I saw it was first film of 2021 I saw, January 1st. So it was nearly two years ago now, so, which is just baffling. That That's how long ago it's been since my first time I watched this film. But even then, I was like, I was shocked at how, like, in touch George Lucas feels with youth. And people in general in this film. I mean, we make fun of it, especially in his uh, prequel Star Wars films, just how out of touch he feels with so much, especially dialogue and the way people talk. And this film is just like the complete opposite 180, which which kind of blew my mind. It's like, wow. And obviously George is way younger when he made this film than, than in you know, 2002, 2003, that kind of 
at that point. But the authentic energy, the interactions between these teens that are all horny or obsessed with their flashy cars. I mean, we got to talk about the cars at some point in this film. It just paints this beautiful, you know, 1962 picture with the slick hair and the, you know, even the cars themselves are the, the, the fur interiors and everyone's got their own set of car dice and the drive-in diners and burger joints and the way everyone sort of talks to each other. It's just like such a great encapsulation of that time period. Like, like you said, we were talking about whether we would put this on our poster films you must mm. watch almost purely because of the way it encapsulates that time period. And for me, the thing I relate to with this film so much was one very particular moment in my life. I will never, ever forget this of such a fleeting random moment that ironically also took place a few months after I graduated high school, but I was driving down South street as you do. It's not as flashy as the streets of this film, No, but driving down South street with a mate and we're, we're talking about something, maybe girl problems or whatever the case may be. And I can't even remember how the interaction started, but there's a car to my right. So we're both driving down now and the windows were open and we just start having a conversation. Me and my mate, to this other car full of random people we've never met before, just having a conversation as we're driving down the road. And that, like, 20, 30 seconds, that interaction, and God, do I wish we all pulled over and just, like, chatted more. You know what I mean? Yeah. I will never know their names. I'll never know who they are. But that 20-second interaction was just so special. And this film is just that, but for 110 minutes. Yeah. It, I don't know. This film is so special. To me, I think but, it, it, it's yeah. a really good film, and and I think you're you're hundred percent right. I'm just reading because for me it's like I was saying this is technically my second watch through, but it might as well be called my first because right, uh, the first cause... time I I visited this film was I would say I was at least fifteen, sixteen, and mm. it's one of those when you, your mum recommends it and goes, "Wow, this is." This is a really good film. You really like Star Wars. This was before Star Wars. This is what he did. And, mm. and you sort of watch it and you go, oh, yeah, it was a good movie, I guess. They're just kind of people hanging around. <laughs> and now you you watch it's it retrospectively as a, as a, you know, as a, t- and this comes back to our, how old were you when you watched a film is really important because sure. it changes your viewing. And, and as both 25 and, and 24, still holding on. Um, <laughs> not, not for long, mate. Not for long. Uh, but for now, you're closer to 20 than you are 30. Yeah, for but now. also um, <laughs> in a post. More importantly, I mean, especially for you, you're in a post uni world, and mm. and I'm I'm on my way out. Sure. Um, the and but especially as someone who is now in the school system, so mm. I'm on the other side of the fence, and you're seeing the t- the year 12s are two weeks, two and a half weeks away from being gone. Right. And then they'll sit. Of course, they've got their still their final exams and stuff, so they're a few months away from this particular but, moment. But emotionally, they're ready. They're so ready. Yeah, and yeah. and you're sitting there, and what find you find interesting is not too long ago, long enough, but mm. not too long ago, you were them. Sure. Overwhelmed by options that come next, that mm. the idea of leaving your small little pocket of what you know is daunting. Yeah. And I find, um, you know, Richard Dreyfuss's character is, is obviously the sort of the epitome to this, mm. to this allegory, this story. And, 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 you know, and, and it alternates between, you know, Dreyfuss's character and Ron Howard's character of Steve. Mm. And, you know, both are in one single and, and 
sort of symbolically looking for this girl, but to, <laughs> to sort blonde. of basically the girl represents obviously everything to stay behind before yeah. for him, and and he goes through this journey of, of a night of completely different um, stories, you know interacts with a lot of people that are a lot older than he his sure. his story is so interesting in, mm. in this and and there's so many layers that you forget it's a lucas film like it's like <laughs> and I, that that sounds so mean but it, it it's like we're talking about this guy that made so pratic science fiction like they're his films they're yeah. the lucas films are star wars films and and what's a, what is a Star Wars film? Well, it's a soap opera in space. Mm. All six of the ones that he was involved in, mainly. Sure. And especially the ones that he had almost all creative control, which are the prequels, mm. are so sopratic. They're dramatic. <laughs> They're over the top. Yeah. That when you look at a script like this that he co-wrote, but he obviously still had a massive... Yeah, and he, he directed those performances, so... I'm so, I'm with you. It's shocking how authentic it all feels, and it's layered and it's nuanced, and there's a lot going on. And I know Dreyfus's character is very much Dustin Hoffman's character <laughs> from The Graduate. They're nearly that's great, and there's that. so much of The Graduate in American Graffiti. Mm. Five years on, um, and Hoffman's character is particularly resonant in Dreyfus's performance. It's considered, I mean. I guess there's no uh, attractive mother that's trying to seduce him, but at his, his neurotic, confused nature and his sort of passive, mm. going with the flow, demeanor is is so apparent. And I'm like, oh, it's just Hoffman's character. I mean, yeah. It's probably got a little a little bit different there, enough different to be its own unique character, but it's it's definitely there. I think I think with Hoffman's performance in The Graduate, it's more, I mean, it's just more outright comedic, and I know that was a very early performance from his career, but like I I think of just like his overreactions <laughs> to the advances. <laughs> that's to me, that's what makes that performance so great I, and sort of stand alone. Yeah. I While mean, with here, I think Dreyfus is there's a bit more. Uh, I don't want to say nuance necessarily. There's a bit more of an everyman feel. Every man is a very, I would say, a very um, adept comment. Yeah, it's it's very correct. Yeah, I, think. I don't think he's like more apparently nerdy than he needs to be for the role. I, I don't think, think he's, he's any less rebellious. To than be honest, he needs I to think be for he's, the role. he's more blank. He's got a little less going on in terms of his character. His depth comes from his observation. Sure, he's a what? blank. He's a, he's a more a blank slate because we're trying to embody him. So it's deliberate. Yeah, choice. that's true. It's a deliberate choice. It's yeah. not. The more obvious characters, like every other one, everyone else around him is a caricature. They share a trait with Dreyfus's character, mm. but they're they're an extreme trait. So you know, you got Toad, who's this just <laughs> utter comic relief, um, nerdy, like he's going on the wacky night, and then you've yeah. got Steve, who's the embodiment of like the wholesome high school heart relate sweetheart relationship, or or you've got um, I'm gonna double check these now, some of these names. Oh, you got John, John, sort of the drag race guy. Yeah, and it, the go-to racy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny you mention that because like specifically Kurt, John, and Terry, or Toad, if you will, 
um, were all based and written around what George would call different stages of his younger life. So I think he referred to Terry as representative of his freshman, nerdier years, I guess earlier in high school, um, or, or freshman in regards to college. I'm, I'm guessing high school. Mm. And then you got John, who represents more of like the angsty teenager street racing side that he was, you know, claimed to be in junior college. And then Kurt, who represents simply, he's a, the personality that he had during his college days, the USC days. So that's probably where you're getting that more everyman blank. Yeah, and I get State. the, and I definitely, the reason I, I do equate the graduate to um, Kurt's character mm. is, uh, you know, is the overwhelming, um, the interactions with, obviously his is the interactions with people a lot older than him. Sure. People that sit mostly in their 30s and 40s, so they've had their college years come back to the town is is very key trait mm. of a lot of them. Sure, they would have great wisdom to impart but on a young lot of, Kurt. <laughs> but a lot of them, at least, like, obviously the more formal characters, like the teacher or the, the, the two mini-golf businessmen, they're, mm. they're all saying the same sort of stuff as the as the rhetoric that was being fed to Hoffman's character in The Graduate of, right. of oh, you're off to go do great things, you're going to do great things, you're going to be the best, you're going to do all this amazing stuff, and it's that overwhelming expectation that mm. is encroaching on Curtin is actually making him quite conflicted but then everyone he sees in the town that's in their 30s or their 40s are either uh, washed up or, or in kind of dead end jobs or they're trying they're having it off with the students or they're yeah. or they're stealing money from children pinball <laughs> machines or well they're stuck in in this sort of stasis mindset as well as the physical location or, or like they have to embody here. a caricature who goes traveling around the world yet they sit alone in a radio station <laughs> that's just the wolf man man just i'm not gonna man. lie it's <laughs> it is his best it's his best work it's is it is it oh. his best work as a director as as a that's a good way to distinct it because I think as a director you could easily argue this is like his greatest work um, in terms of the world that he teleports you to, the way he builds that world, the way he gets performances out of characters and how he tells that story. And like you said, in terms of the stakes, it's not operatic. It's not over-dramatized or melodramatic. It's, it just finds that perfect sweet spot, which I think sort of shows in this point of his career between, like I said, the three stages of, you know, THX, this film, and then Star Wars, which get, I wouldn't say more apolitical as he went on, but I think the political commentary became more sort of weaved in more subtly and cleverly. I mean, we all know there's a lot of political commentary going on with Star Wars or social commentary. Mm. You know, who, who are the Empire really? You know, who are the Empire? But... That's done with this fantasy coat of paint over it. So it's not as clear or as abundant, the political message. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm looking at a comment. The first comment that comes up on Letterboxd, and mm. it's, it's by this, it's just by Patrick. Yeah, Patrick. Uh, but he says a really good comment where he goes, I love Star Wars, but it's a tragedy that it prevented us from ever getting more movies from George Lucas, who made American Graffiti. Yes. And oh I my think God, that yes. this sits perfectly in this conversation where... Yeah, I mean, like we're seeing a true director's voice here, mm. and I love Star Wars, and we can. Yeah, I will talk about how I love Star Wars till the cow, you know, the cows come home. But was 
Star Wars, the death of, of this director's true potential as a creative, mm. as an auteur, probably, potentially. Maybe this was all... Maybe Star Wars really was the end of his creative rainbow. That was all, like... That was yeah. his. That was his apex, and he knew that was his apex. So he cashed in as much as he could. But you look at George's career, because this is a director's corner. So we're looking at his yep. career, and as a director, it's like the last. You know, you go. It's as simple as going into Letterbox and going, "Did he direct anything in the 2010s?" And the short answer is. No, I don't believe he did. Mm. Well, I think more importantly than what he literally did direct or what he did work on is that we're looking at his career in this three-point system that starts and ends in the 70s. Mm. And the fact that Star Wars sort of engulfed his entire career from that point on, you're right. It is a shame that that franchise pretty much effectively killed any and all hope that George Lucas would make other films, make auteur films. Mm. Because Star Wars, I feel like, is an auteur film to an extent. Because you have, you know, famously it was saved in the edit and you have John Williams' music and you have all of these elements that if not present in the film, Star Wars would be a complete, utter mess. Well, I mean, it's and it's one of those things where I'm looking at it right now and it's 77 Star Wars, so that's four years on and then we don't see him until 99 and mm-hmm. that's with Phantom Menace and then we go to Attack of Clones and Revenge of the Tooth and that was it. He was done by 2005. We're now 18, 18 years removed from that film. Mm. And just just to be clear, that's a longer drought than Peter Weir has. <laughs> um, and Oh, God. Is it actually? No, Peter Weir did a 2010 film, I think. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a longer drought. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see, I see. Oh, it's what you mean, the other way around. And we were, we were saying Peter Weir's due for a film. I know. Oh, my God. So, Is he due for a film ever? And look, I would... I would kill to see one more Lucasfilm. has nothing to do with Star Wars. Well, I, I think, again, it goes back to that feeling of, like, this film feels so in touch with the youth of this era and the youth of the audience that saw it. And this film, I said THX was a commercial failure. This is one of... The, American Graffiti is one of the most pop, uh, popular, uh, profitable films of all time. If we get at a s- roughly $750,000 budget... And I think it made $140 million back. And you adjust that for inflation, budget against um, you know earned revenue. And, of course, you've got horror films that have probably done better than that. But it is authentically one of the most profitable films of all time. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is, yes, he strayed from um, the over-politicalness of his previous film. But because it struck a chord with the audience, and obviously Star Wars struck a, struck a chord with not only the sci-fi audience, but virtually everyone, it feels like. But could he ever, even if right now George Lucas has sat down and said, all right, I'm going to make a new film, and it's not going to be sci-fi, it's like, I'm just I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Would he possibly be able to recapture that, that sense of not necessarily youth, but just like the voice of the people? Could he make something that appeals to people again? I mean, Spielberg keeps doing it, but then Spielberg was Spielberg been doing it for consistent, decades. and it's also a consistent practice. I mean, we're, like we said, we're talking about a man who's eighteen years removed from his last film, mm. which, admittedly, Revenge of the Sith over time has actually yielded a more positive reception, I would say, than probably what its immediate um, reception was. Sure. So, um, 
I or think is that, that just people miss George Lucas? People just kind of miss that type of Star Wars and that, that and what, kind of director. That, well, I mean, what does that say about the director we're talking about? Mm. If, if you're missing a man that has made more critical... From a percentage point of view, has made <laughs> as many cr- critical flops as he has successes, how do we sit here and go, wow, I want to see one more film from him? Isn't that truly remarkable? Like as a as a concept, it's because we know deep down there is you know a great authentic directorial voice in there, and you know like what I said about Star Wars, you could technically apply it to American Graffiti in the sense of oh well you know a lot of it is the music, you know a lot of it is the soundtrack. But and it's that not. Made the, I think it's the it's the cohe- yeah. it's this ensemble. I'm saying you could say that. Yeah, I yeah. I think it's the ensemble plot. It's. Re- it's intergenerationally resonant to the mm. point where films are 100% homaging, if not even overtly uh, copying aspects of it. Like, I think you watch this and then watch Days and Confused, you're like, wow, well, Linklater loved graffiti because <laughs> he's gone and he's gone and, and, I, and we're talking about one of my favorite, if not my favorite director, sure. going and taking a Lucas film and putting his own Linklater esque on it. Now, mm. The overtalking dialogue, it's these characters that are existential, they're, they're, they're resonant in graffiti. And it's told 15 years later because guess what? Linklater's 15 years younger. Mm-hmm. Like he's he was doing his version of the same story from his generation's point of view. And then, yeah, look, no, not all of them do the one night formula, but we, we've seen it with other, you know, like what Jonah Hill did with mid 90s and mm-hmm. stuff, like these coming of age telling. Telling what my life was like in the nineties, right through through the lens of someone else, and um, it's it is truly interesting um, for me. But I think it, if we're going to see if we're ever going to see another Lucas film, it has to happen in the next two or three years. But boy, I tell you, does whatever, it though? Well, but I mean, dep- oh, are you talking about his age? Or? Just from an age point of view. Okay, I mean, I mean the man's. Right. Born in 1944, so that puts him at 79? Depends on, yeah. The, oh, well, the Clint Eastwood's making September. films at 91, so yeah, no, I guess it doesn't have, have to happen. <laughs> well, what if I mean, can... <laughs> I'm not talking about his age, I'm talking about like the sense of urgency of, you know, I think that's it. All anyone talks about with George Lucas anymore is in relation to Star Wars, which I just like... I wouldn't want to see a Star Wars film. No, exactly. I want to see... I want to see if this director is a, is truly is a good director, like, and that's such an uh, or sorry, not a good director. Is he an auteur? Because I think they're two different things. You can be mm-hmm. a good commercial director and you can tick boxes and you can be a good working, but does this person have a unique voice to which we should still be talking about him, mm-hmm. or are we forever going to be just talking about how New Hope? had all of these really... had no reason to be as good as it was. And then it was. And then... The thing is, I don't think it's a question of whether George Lucas is an auteur, because I reckon you could easily argue he is. And you could even argue he is based on those last three Star Wars films he made. Because as much as you could argue a lot of that was made by Yes Men, and, but it's like, that's the point is that every single creative decision in that film, at least as far yeah. as we know, was made by the man himself. Doesn't mean people liked it or enjoyed it or had differing opinions on it. Absolutely. But 
I think I don't know. I, I just think the question would be if George Lucas did decide to make something new, a western. <laughs> he could do a good job at it. He'd do a great western. But that that's the point is like can he do that again? I would be so curious. And I think people would have to cut him some bloody slack if he did jump anchor because it's obvious a big part of the reason he doesn't do it is because of the response that he got. I think Say he does a film that has nothing to do with Star Wars, right? Please. <laughs> Please. I can't imagine the critic... Like, I can't imagine... First off, that's not going to buy the Star Wars fanboys. Okay, so you don't have to worry about toxic Star Wars fans really coming to watch it. George Lucas goes and makes American Graffiti-esque... God, like, godchild of that film. Right. Or, or goes and makes, I don't know... The American graffiti, but it's told from the seventy-year-old's perspective. So it's a seventy-year-old <laughs> living now. Like, well, not not even just like you know American graffiti part two, which I'm pretty sure there is a sequel to this. Just something completely different. Like, yeah. So it, say he goes and a does, Western. Like yeah, you said, so, why not? Say he goes and does a You're not going to. People aren't going to go watch that movie. They're not going to go see the new George Lucas film. Like they're just if it's not a Star Wars film, because the name is associated with Star Wars for like most people because I, I mean like we're looking at this right now jake we've got plenty of like mates on letterbox you me and and harry are the only ones who are, that i've got on mine that have watched american graffiti mm. so and we got a lot of film friends they've never <laughs> even seen american graffiti and and i'm not putting that on them but i'm just saying like people don't watch george lucas films that aren't i've never seen thq i really want to but right. it's not accessible really you have to rent it Mm. and stuff it's not like on a streaming service and you know the funny i was going to say this when we're like oh it's but i mean i'm what what if we're not we're talking about say the a24 crowd cool that they they do go out of their way to watch these films as you know if if american graffiti is not on any (laughs) random streaming service like getting an a24 no but that's what i'm saying like the crowd that you know the criterion crowd like people who do have an authentic love for film i mean this guy that you mentioned patrick who says like he wants more George Lucas that isn't Star Wars. Yep. There are a whole crowd of people like him. But does that person exist anymore? That's my... Like, that's the driving question, isn't it? Because we are now, as of next year, 50 years removed from this film. Mm. But again, I don't think... If George Lucas were to come back, uh, he makes a brand new Western next year, unrelated to Star Wars or anything... I still think you're going to get a, a array of film fans who may have not even seen American Graffiti that are still so curious of what George Lucas would do, quote-unquote, outside of Star Wars. Because even though that already exists, like you said, there's a lot of people that won't put in the effort to try and find this film from 1973. I'm going to depressed. This is 50 years ago. <laughs> this is 50 years ago. No, but I I mean, it's a time capsule. This is a perfect time capsule film. I mean, look, to, en- to end it on, because I want to talk a bit more about the film yeah, itself. Sure. Sorry. But- no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's a director's corner. This is what we do. But I think I want to end it on this positive note. I actually think a lot of people who do love film, who seek film, you know, the people, and I've seen this many times, the, the people who go and watch X with their mothers, there are an array of them. <laughs> Those kind of people will love to watch a new George Lucas film. I would be there day one because I would just be so curious, especially if it looked good, even if it doesn't look good. Mm. You know, he's just such an important figure in, in the film industry and we're used to our Coppolas and our Spielbergs and that we're used to them having things coming out and 
I don't know, some sort of triumphant return from George Lucas would be very oh, I'd be here for it. I think, I think there would be a lot of Star Wars fans that are interested in it, just because I think we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of people, you know, oh, I regret what I said. I wish George Lucas didn't sell it off. You know, Disney ruined it even more than he did. I, I generally think it would, I wouldn't say successful, but there would be an interest in there from a crowd. Yeah, I don't know. I just want, I want to end it on that. Hopeful there note, was a, so to speak. More American Graffiti was the sequel. Oh, there you go. And it had to do with the Vietnam War. Oh. <laughs> it's got a 2.8. Uh, yeah, not not as quite high praise, but... Yeah, it's funny because you mentioned earlier that there are certain characters in this film. You have police officers and you have... I think this, it's the school principal at the dance who goes off at Steve. You've got a few of these characters that you can argue are, like, authoritarian characters. And I think what's so special about this film is even though these characters exist, more so than all other films in this ilk, you know, you got West Side Story, you even got you know, Back to the Future with Strickland, and you got all these films that do take place with youth in the 50s or 60s or, you know, in this time period, at some point in the 20th century, The Breakfast Club, mm. perfect example. There's always an authoritarian character that every the, the young people have to stick it to. Mm-hmm. And... I remember when I first watched this, it stuck out to me. I was like, this film doesn't really have a lot of that. It feels more like just a Wild West of 17, 18-year-olds. And you have, you know, characters who are older and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in their 30s or whatever. But, but they're either behaving just like the kids or on an equal playing field. Or they're completely harmless. You know, the car salesman is trying to sell... Um, oh, my God. what am I, How am Sorry. I thinking his name? Yeah. Well... Terry, there it is, Terry. Charles Martin Smith is trying to sell him the car. Yeah. What's he going to... He's an authority figure. He's not going to do anything. Even the... Prin- I think it's a principal. It could just be one, another teacher at the school dance that goes off at Steve and he sort of talks back to him. It's like, he's harmless. He can't do much. And I thought that was an interesting yeah, juxtaposition I mean, it, it, this film I has. I think what it's showing is it, it's showing these characters th- that... What it, what it's trying to do it is it's like the thing with 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 the salesman that's that's pestering more mm. than like Toad doesn't walk out buying a new car or or when the principal goes up to Steve and and goes oh you're suspended it's like I graduated last semester yeah so you actually have no agency or power it it is that that illusionment of establishment where the only real sense of danger or or authority that we see is is the police officers and, and see I I don't even think they have and I I, I was going to argue yeah. they they don't because uh, you know you see what Kurt does to them where he mm. you know puts the hook under and they take Rips them the off the box out. and it's <laughs> a great scene it is a, it, and it's a great scene it's sort of one of these things that I think that the film is trying to show that you know really life is everyone's kind of equal. Mm. That's definitely the equally as lost and immature as they've forever been, because you got all these adults. You know, you got we haven't even talked about like Harrison Ford's character who mm. is going to seek out, um, you seek know, out John for seek a race. out a John <laughs> for a race, and you know, and ends up rolling his car <laughs> and and crashing. And it's one of those things where it's like that's a grown man who's gone to a town. Because it feels like, at the end of the day, it just feels like a lot of people that don't have, like, a lot of time on their hands and not right. a lot to do. You know, you got people going from town to town racing each other. Like, <laughs> John has this reputation across 
the the valley yeah i love that the valley (laughs) everyone's in the moment you know and that's part of the the structure of this all just taking place over one night and you're right there's a lot of characters you know like kurt and like steve Mm. and who are thinking about their futures and are quite indecisive because i i think you're right i think the whole thing with kurt having he's almost just like this fomo of if he leaves what is he going to miss and that is represented by the blonde the blonde girl that he can't he can't find and we see that steve's almost punished not punished but in a sense that he his indecisiveness with laurie is is only rewarded afterwards when you know they're finally sort of broken up and then all the girls are flirting with him and he's just not happy and he ends up basically you know hugging her from safety after the car accident so i think there's a lot of and characters Alexa to stay in the town yeah with her until at least she's uh graduated herself mm. um and that's quite a is a um interesting story for sure because you know that the, their indecisive nature is that oh like them starting the night out with them going oh well we should see other people while yeah. i'm away and trying to act all mature but really don't have the emotional maturity to cope with it and mm. ends up being a flip-flop night of of rekindling and fighting and rekindling and and you know terry has a whole story about trying to get alcohol and <laughs> basically just trying to impress a girl to these obscene lies and, yeah i mean he, he lies he steals liquor he gets yeah. beat up like it's all to you know punch above his weight and interestingly enough he is sort of awarded for that because debbie does sort of say like oh well let's keep in touch yeah despite the fact that it's it's not his car he stole the uh the vehicle the john Chevrolet, who has, so to speak john ha- who in the first 10 it's really good first nine minutes like what i like about the first nine minutes mm. is it sets up all of the friend dynamics because we're about to watch all of these characters actually not spend any time together really in this story yeah but in the first nine minutes we establish all of the relationships and we set the stakes so quickly and acutely, it's fantastic. Like, mm. And that's, like, the fact that Kurt really doesn't interact with Steve, um, John, or Terry next to at all during the whole night. And we only see a little bit of of, of Terry interacting with, with John towards the back end of mm. the film. And they take, you know, the big climactic race. And, and Laurie sort of crosses over from the the steve storyline into into the the john storyline but kurt goes on a complete solo voyage basically (laughs) and that's really interesting he's leaving home to find home yeah and it's but within home (laughs) yeah and i i I really like how they they interwire and they give all these characters arcs you know that terry should just embrace being himself that john actually develops maturity over the night when he finds a a 14 year old stowaway in Mm. his car and is desperately trying to uh, find her home because he's responsible, but he didn't want to. He always wanted to play off like he wasn't responsible. He has his own little grease storyline. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because he's like you said, he's he's basically trying to pawn her off until the point where he finally does, and then she's getting you know cat called by the car passing around, and he ends up bringing her back in the car because he does have this you know sense of responsibility now for this girl. But I like I like the way he's trying to just cover his head constantly because it's not only who you're with but the car that you're driving that is mm-hmm. just all of the reputation that comes with this film. 
and but it, then, mm-hmm. and it, but it's obviously it's very overt and on the nose. But it's sort of the point is is the fact that this is how harsh teenagers are, and and they all, especially these ones who are on the verge of adulthood, are trying to. They think they have it all together, and they think they understand everything, but they really understand nothing, and and things as 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 um, materialistic as the car they're driving for men, which is such a phallic. Mm. undertone there that it's and to be honest hasn't been lost on men <laughs> the <laughs> the over stimulation of driving a cool car and um well is this is this one of those films as well that like if you are a car, car guy you're gonna get so much out of that and even from like john's uh, i wrote some of these down 1932 ford coupe which is obviously you know just a sort of classic squ- almost square shape yeah hot rod design um, and I found it interesting as well, even in the Wikipedia write-up, just the actual synopsis described Blonde's Ford Thunderbird, which obviously does come into play because that's the car. He has to name mm. the car in the radio message by the end of the film. But it's like, there is an importance to all of these cars. I mean, you even have the line when, when uh, not Kurt, when Terry's driving the Chevrolet and a passerby says, oh, what a waste of machinery on you. It's like... Mm the associations are all there and I kind of just love that, that plays into again the wild west that is this small town with these kids I just thought that was all done wonderful. and again the film it culminates with a drag race mm-hmm. it's like the second to last scene with this big explosion so great I mean I think all the car stuff is just so important to this film absolutely that's where a lot of the graffiti comes from in American graffiti but I also wanted to give a shout out to a couple of THX references I caught, other than the license plate on the coupe, which I thought was mm-hmm. obviously very great, and it keeps coming up. But there's also the uninterpretable voice when Terry's at the drive-in, and he can't understand what the voice. I'm like, that has to be a THX reference. Yeah. Well, he does like referencing <laughs> his own films. So. Yeah. Well, I think I can't remember what it was, but I think it was while editing this film that he he coined the name R2D2, which was short for what was it, a roll of film? R2-D2. Roll to... Wait, R2... Yeah, roll to... I can't remember now. I can't remember. But like you said, like they're all sort of interconnected in terms of these yeah, names and, and where all these references come from. But, yeah. And the music. We talked about it. Johnny Be Good. Excellent stuff. <laughs> Johnny Be Good. A little bit of a Back to the Future thing Absolutely. There. Before Back to the Future was a thing. No worries. Jake, so, do you have know. anything else you'd like to add? I'm happy to jump straight into highlight scenes. Highlight scenes. Highlight uh, scenes. What was your highlight scene? Um, for me, and again, a little bit of a THX uh, reference in there, but also reminded me of something that Bassin Dream, excuse me, does at the end of its film. Mm-hmm. It has to be the sequence where, sort of at the midpoint of the film, all the journeys are sort of culminating now, and it just cuts between several groups of characters in the cars as they're all quietly listening to the Wolfman radio station that's playing Wolfman. out. Wolfman. And I just, I love, it's just like a nice, tiny little breather where we're not getting dialogue or, or plot advancement. We're just like, everyone's sort of interconnected by this audio that they're all listening to. Mm-hmm. Almost unknowingly, they're all listening to it together. I mean, they do because obviously Kurt uses it as a vehicle to get in touch with, um, I think she's she's just named The Blonde. Yeah. I believe that's her credit or her name. But, I just thought that was a nice little section in there. Again, with the voice, it, it did remind me of the audio editing in THX, the, the short film. Um, but it also reminded me, and I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, 
the ending of Bass and Dream with an ambulance siren. That's sort of just that sound effect that interconnects all the stories in an otherwise series of unrelated stories. And I thought this was American Graffiti's equivalent of that. So yeah, nice little scene right in the middle there. What about you, Zeke? What's your highlight scene? I think it's going to be the interaction between Kurt and the Wolfman. I think it's a... <laughs> it's nice. What I think that particular sequence shows us is is what we're talking about with this this Lucas telling a, a sincere, heartfelt, interpersonal story and mm. also just classic storytelling techniques. But something that, especially a lot of his peers, you know, we're talking about this, this massive group of influential directors that were birthed at this time and with Lucas and, and Coppola and, and Spielberg and De Palma and, and Scorsese, you know, mm. like there was a whole group of them and a lot of them managed to echo this a lot. I feel like a lot more really tap into the human emotion. So, sure. you know, and I don't think Star Wars, Star Wars still hits, but it hits in the Socratic sense in mm. the, oh my God, like Darth Vader's Luke's father sure. or Obi-Wan's died. Like, it's very dramatic mm. and it's still cool. Like don't, don't get me wrong, but this scene is so grounded and personal and something that we just don't see in the Lucas films following, not in the same sense, you know, mm. like I said, he goes more for Socratic theater with star Wars, very over the top and big dramatic monologues of the high ground and you were my brother and all that and specifically no but seriously like yeah, like it, yeah. and it's so on the nose but it still hits it still hits i have the high ground hits, but it doesn't hit in the same way as something like wolfman who is this absolute like this this mythos character mm. and, and you break the mythos down with a with a subtle uh, uh, kurt our our fly on the wall slice of life character that embodies the the life of 62 as a as a aspiring and outgoing teenager and and you know there's this guy who's created this whole character about traveling around the world and living lives and just that final shot when kurt looks back at, at wolfman and he's put the voice on and it's mm. a little silhouetted and, and lighting like it's classic visual storytelling and i just love it yeah. It's like I'm like that. I want more of this. If this still exists, I thought I thought it was weird that he that he told um that he told Kurt that he had the high ground. I thought that was a bit odd. <laughs> American Graffiti is currently out on wide release, or you can rent it from multiple different outlets. Mm. Um, I have for, my Blu-ray right there. It's or you good. do yourself a favor, go to JB Hi-Fi for I think it's five dollars. I bought mine for and just oh, own nice. it. Very nice. I like it. So. Good stuff. That easy. Jake, speaking of streaming platforms, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? It's pretty uh, pretty dry week, to be honest. No, uh, Cobra Kai Season 5 does come out to Netflix this week. Did you say what now? Yeah, no. Well, I uh, there's not a lot. It's a, it's a quantity issue, not a quality issue. I've also got Season 6 beginning for Rick and Morty, which that really came around fast, didn't it? I really did, actually. I, I feel like people got so hung up on how long it took for them to do seasons like three and four mm. that now that they're actually churning out seasons pretty quickly, no one cares anymore. Yeah. I'll watch it, though. I'll, I'll watch the season premiere. It's out now on Netflix. You also got a film, End of the Road, high-octane action thriller with Kareem Latifah. Latifah, yes. As Brenda on a cross-country trip through the New Mexican desert. 
Very nice. Is it Breaking Bad good? Who knows? We shall <laughs> find out. Not. <laughs> you also got the Matrix trilogy coming to binge, as well as Red Rocket, a fantastic film. Great film. We talked about episode 156. That also comes to Prime. So if you've got either all, you can do that. Coming to Disney Plus, we have Four Love and Thunder. So I might actually watch it now. <laughs> Even though I heard it's it's really, Not really great. bad. I, you know what? The more I hear about it, I'm like, this is just people say it's terrible. It's just terrible. Weird to think about, isn't it? Well, I get from like the Taika with Titty standpoint, sure. From the Marvel standpoint, not too surprising. I kind of like, though, that people are sort of anatomously agreeing Marvel's like rock bottom at the moment. Mm. I don't think Marvel's ever. You see ever... that, uh, so that whole thing with She Hulk? Oh, there's like yeah. a twerking scene in it. Mm-hmm. I still haven't seen the third episode. I just can't bring myself up to do it. How does that make it into. It's just crazy. <laughs> not going to start. Just... No, I just I, I'm kind of I'm glad people just unanimously agree. Marvel, really rock bottom stuff at the moment. So we'll see. But if I end up watching Four Love and Fun, we'll see. I waited, waited for it to come streaming. You also got Robert Zemeckis's Pinocchio. It's Pinocchio. very exciting. A lot of Pinocchio adaptations. I see Zemeckis back in. I know. I think I think he's gonna kill it. I have a good feeling about this Pinocchio. We shall see. And coming to cinemas. Uh, I, la- I talked about this last week, but DC League of Super Pets is going wide. You also got the A Quiet Girl, sorry, The Quiet Girl, an Irish language film about a girl sent away from a dysfunctional family. That also goes wide this week. You also got Flux Gourmet, I believe Gourmet, which sees a group of experimental performance artists uh, for a process called sonic catering, extract disturbing sounds from various foods. That sounds wild. Uh, they all join an institution. In which an outsider is now tasked with filming their rituals, only to discover he is slowly becoming a part of the collective himself. That sounds wild. I saw the poster. It looks a little more fun than that write-up implies. <laughs> a little bit more colourful. Because that, that, that could be dark as hell, that plot line. But I'm not, I'm not sure. We'll see. Speaking of dark, finally, <laughs> Bodies, 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 the latest from A24, and sees a group of rich 20-somethings plan a hurricane party at a remote family mansion before it turns into a deadly game. Begins previewing this week at Hoyts, and I think this... I know it's this weekend at Luna. It might be Saturday. So keep an eye out for that. It's You know what? I think A24 sort of... I don't know what I'm excited for next of May 24. I mean, there's, there's stuff like you know, Ari Aster and things like that. But mm. I, think, I think we're sort of getting this train of horror films like X and Body, Body, Bodies and... Where it's like, it's just a little too teen-centric, stylistic, that I'm sure they're great, but I'm not like overly excited for any of them. We'll see. I really have to do a look at what A24's like actual slot is, because I just hear stuff that very slowly comes out. I want another lamb. I want another lamb. Like another really odd Icelandic Yeah, not, not like Lamb 2, The Lamb Strikes Back. Just like, you're right, like that kind of film. Very slow and cold and... Yeah. The bodies, bodies, bodies did not intrigue me at all. No. I haven't seen a trailer or anything for it, but it just it just sounds like we've seen this kind of thing. It's like isn't the babysitter I mean that's Netflix. That's obviously not as, you know, stylistic. It's probably a bit more fun and wacky, but you know what I mean? Like it's just kinda it all falls under that same slot of like fun, gory horror. I just I don't know how much I care. That's okay. Because we're not doing any of those films next week. But Jake what yeah. are we watching? <laughs> Pregnant pause. Next week on the show, Zeke. For episode 191, we're doing a film from 1991. 
That's that's pretty smooth. Oh, I wonder who came up with that idea. Yeah. Is it Surf's Up? <laughs> Surf's Up. <laughs> no, you see. It's not Surf's Up. <laughs> Next week on the show, we're watching Point Break. <laughs> Jesus. That was so good. <laughs> I'm proud. Oh, my God. The ultimate rush is nothing that comes close to it. Not even sex. We are the ex-president. Total commitment. It's a real thin line between life and death. I'm not a crook. It's not tragic to die doing what you love. If you want the ultimate, you gotta be willing to pay the ultimate price. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and please don't forget to vote. FBI agent Johnny Utah infiltrates a group of surfers involved in a number of bank robberies. However, things get complicated when he befriends the gang's leader. Ah, I just got it. Surfers. Yeah. Oh, I see. Do you like it now? Was it funny? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Zick, I'll give you it. Thank you. Well done. Well done. You love this film. I love this film. This Mm. is my favorite guilty pleasure film. Guilty pleasure film, yeah. Yeah, it's actually good. Like, it's, yeah, really, I was it's, Catherine, say, it's... it's Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, yeah. So this is very early Catherine Bigelow, which is great. Mm-hmm. To be fair, she just makes a lot of bangers. To be fair, so it's gonna be an interesting director to talk about again because we did we did the director's corner for her in Hurt Locker, Hurt Locker, which actually might have been like episode. You know what? It might have actually been episode ninety or ninety five. Yeah, I, I think it was ninety five. So nearly a hundred weeks ago. Which is crazy, and we're finally going to be talking about her again, even deeper into her career with Point Break. I'm excited, because I've never seen this before. I'm excited to see how much of a guilty pleasure it actually is, or if it is authentically great. It sounds authentically great. So we shall see. There we go. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Point Break. <laughs>